Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 169. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 63 through 66 and follow with some thoughts about us and our ecosystem. Psalm 63 begins with an expression of yearning. The poet likens his desire for God to the body's desire for water, which, again, based on the superscription, quote, in the wilderness of Judea, makes a lot of sense. Quote, my throat thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you in a land waste and parched with no water. And when the poet achieves that closeness, quote, as with ripest repast, my being is sated, and with lips of glad song my mouth declares praise. Nevertheless, the poet's detractors are still after him in sharp contrast to the previous episode. This time, he is less circumspect with his desire. Quote, may they plunge to the depths of the earth. May their blood be shed by the sword. May they be served up to the foxes. Oh, damn! Psalm 64 elaborates on the activities of the detractors, for the poet enumerates them as he pleads with God to protect him from it. Quote, Conceal me from the counsel of evil men, from the hubbub of the wrongdoers, who wetted their tongue like a sword, pulled back their arrow, a bitter word, to shoot in concealment the innocent. In a flash, shot him down without fear. They encourage themselves with evil words. They recount how traps should be laid. They say, who will see them? The poet not only wants to be saved from these plotters, but, quote, all who see them will nod in derision, and all men will fear and tell of God's act, and his deed they will grasp. Psalm 65 brims with praise and thankfulness. Quote, happy whom you choose to draw close, he will dwell in your courts. May we be sated with your house's bounty, the holiness of your temple. For the one who clings to God can feel secure because God, quote, sets mountains firm in his power. He is girded in might, who quiets the roar of the seas, the roar of their waves, and the tumult of nations, and those who dwell at earth's ends will fear your signs. And beyond this feeling of security, God will deliver rain, and the rain will cause crops to grow and bounty to flow. Quote, the wilderness meadows do drip. And with joy, the hills are girded. The pastures are clothed with flocks, and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy, they even sing. Psalm 66 continues on this high note, quote, All the earth bows down to you, and they hymn to you, hymn your name, Selah. Come and see the acts of God, awesome in works over humankind. God did well by the poet and the people in the past, and will similarly redeem in the future, and in between the hardships wrought by God upon the people to teach them a lesson, quote, for you tested us, God, you refined us as silver refined. But in the end, it all turned out for the best, and for this, the poet especially brings praise, quote, I shall come to your house with burnt offerings, I shall pay you my vows that my lips uttered, that my mouth spoke in my straits, Fat burnt offerings I shall offer up to you with the incense of rams. I shall sacrifice cattle and goats, Selah. Come listen and let me recount, all you who fear God, what he did for me. To him with my mouth I called out, exultation upon my tongue. Had I seen mischief in my heart, the master would not have listened. God indeed has listened, has hearkened to the sound of my prayer. Blessed is God who has not turned away my prayer nor his kindness from me. And on that uplifting note... Here endeth the lesson.
poet employs a lot of imagery from nature. In some cases, it's absence, and in some circumstances, it's abundance. Actually, most circumstances, he talks about its abundance. Thirsty man yearning for water in the desert. He compares the good life to meadows, hills, and pastures, lush and green, and valleys filled with grain. Which got me thinking about how the Tanakh in general regards nature and its abundance. In an era of climate strikes and rising CO2 levels and the imminent collapse of our ecosystem, is there anything to be learned from the poet on this? Some vocal evangelical Christians have contended that, based on Genesis 1.28, God put nature at our disposal to use and subdue as we see fit. This mirrors, resonates with, reflects upon, drives the logic of capitalism, which sees the value of everything, land, knowledge, and even human life, as a function of how much money it can make for the wealthy. Sorry, was that a bit too Marxist? Let me rephrase. This is the logic of capitalism, which sees the value of everything as a function of maximizing profit in a competitive market. Is that better? The thing is that climate change is and always has been a class issue. It, it was, it's been caused by the wealthy, and by and large, its effects fall on the poor. Just 100 companies are responsible for 70% of all carbon emissions. Globally, the wealthiest 10% are responsible for 50% of all lifestyle consumption emissions. The poorest parts of the world will likely be most ravaged by the effects of climate change. Low-lying states like Bangladesh are vulnerable to flooding as the sea levels rise. Africa's Sahel region, home to nearly 200 million people, will become desertified as temperatures increase. Most critically, the poorest states are also those least able to protect their citizens from extreme weather events. And as participants in the capitalist system, we are all complicit in this degradation of the environment to varying degrees. It's almost a natural component of being human in the 21st century, this complicity, especially if you live in the post-industrial West. It's as much a part of being human as is the penchant for trash talk and gossip, which, as we've said on numerous occasions, vexes the poet to no end. I wonder if we Venn diagrammed all the folks who pollute the discourse with the folks who pollute the environment. I wonder how much overlap there would be between those two circles. In other words, what's the correlation between the people who are careless with words and those who are careless with nature? I guess today it would be relatively easy to diagram such a relationship, but it's hard to think of folks being environmental polluters in biblical times. Those are pre-industrial days, so they weren't pumping CO2 into the atmosphere like a barn on fire. They didn't have two-day delivery with Amazon, if you know what I mean. And even if they weren't being good stewards of the earth, they were doing it on such a minuscule scale. But we have numerous examples of humans wrecking the environment for really no good reason, or more like rules against that. Exodus 22, sandwiched in between various socially progressive laws about protecting the vulnerable like workers and the poor, we have some examples of injunctions about returning lost and wandering animals or coming to the aid of overburdened animals. Later in Exodus, during the listing of the Ten Commandments or pronouncements, even pack animals and beasts of burden, their benefit to rest on Shabbat. Deuteronomy 22 prohibits hitching an ox and an ass together to pull a plow. Dealing with fauna humanely is a popular theme, as I guess humans are prone to abuse animals in a variety of settings. 
In the book of Jonah, God has pity on Nineveh, a city that the text describes as populated by 120,000 people and, quote, all so much cattle. This attitude, I guess, is best encapsulated by Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10, which states, quote, a righteous man knows the needs of his beast, but the compassion of the wicked is cruelty. <laughs> The same attitude extends to the earth itself. On numerous occasions, the Torah declares that, quote, the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. Or, quote, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Earlier, Psalm 24 relates that, quote, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they who dwell therein. Trees are a particular focus of attention. Although a tree stood at the very center of the first human moral dilemma, we are enjoined in particular to look after them. We are prohibited from cutting down fruit trees in wartime. Deuteronomy chapter 20 asks, quote, is the tree of the field a man to come in during the siege before you? So in fact, we're looking after trees even more than we're looking after men in that context. Trees are also regarded as so critical to human survival that the Me'am Loez, a 19th century biblical commentator, wrote, quote, Man's life is dependent on trees, and the tree is so important for the existence of the world that the sages established a special blessing for those who go out in the month of Nisan and see blossoming fruit-producing trees. The blessing says, quote, Nothing is lacking from his world, and he created good creations and good trees for the benefit of man. We get into a thorny area when we start to look at rabbinic literature and its interpretation of the commandment to, quote, settle the land. On its face, this mitzvah of yeshuv ha'aretz enjoins us to develop the natural world to provide for our needs, including a suitable place to live, work, learn, and serve God, and also to develop appropriate systems for the supply of food, energy, water, and transportation needs. It puts forth a vision of sustainability and good stewardship. And so later on in the Shulchan Aruch, a 16th century legal code compiled by Rabbi Yosef Karo, it states that if someone wants to buy a parcel of land to build houses, ostensibly to fulfill the commandment of settling the land, and the neighbor in the plot of the land next to the land being sold wants to buy the same parcel of land to plant crops, the house-building buyer has first right because of Yeshuv Haaretz. However, if the neighbor wants to plant trees, he takes precedence over the other buyer. In recent decades, the commandment of Yishuv Haaretz, you know, settling the land, has been enlisted for, shall we say, less constructive purposes. But in the mind of the poet, a polluter is still a polluter. The wicked man, the mutterer, the slanderer who cuts down a person would just as well cut down a tree and arguably vice versa. For the poet, both humans and their environment need tender loving care because if we harm the latter, the former can't survive. For the poet, the righteous person doesn't compartmentalize their righteousness and reserve their good works only for humans. The righteous focus equally and positively on all of God's creations, appreciating the good land and good trees as an expression of God's favor. As the poet concludes, quote, You take care of the earth and irrigate it. You enrich it greatly with the channel of God full of water. You provide grain for men, for so do you prepare it. Saturating its furrows, leveling its ridges, you soften it with showers, you bless its growth, you crown the year with your bounty. Fatness is distilled in your paths, the pasture lands distill it, the hills are girded with joy, the meadows are clothed with flocks, the valleys mantled with grain. 
They raise a shout. They break into song. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text. Nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 170 when we continue in Psalms with chapters 67 through 70.